John chapter 3 verses 17 through 21. The message is entitled, How Men Condemn Themselves. This is a fascinating passage, as well as important. Look at verse 17. You remember Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about how to get to heaven, who came to him by night. And he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It is amazing to contemplate how much has gone on in the history of the world that leads up to this discussion. It is amazing to think of all the revelation that God gave to the human race before this discussion. To contemplate God's movements with Adam and Eve in the garden in the very beginning. To contemplate his interaction through prophets and revelation after the fall of man in the garden so that you have God revealing himself in a progressive way all the way through the Old Testament and that whole period of human history. But as we get to this point in human history with mankind, God is now standing on earth. He's in the body of a man. And what he is giving is absolute, crystal, clear, unmistakable revelation as to how a human being can be forgiven of their sins, granted eternal life, enjoy fellowship with God now in this life because God is very concerned with man's existence on earth, and then go to dwell with God forever. There is nothing clearer in all the Bible about how to go to heaven than the words of Jesus in front of us right here. And I say that because we survey the Bible, we study the Bible, we put together our theology, and sometimes we put it together in such a way that when we're all done, it's so sanitary, it's so pasteurized, it's so clean and full, squeaky clean, you might say, with man's logic and man's conclusions, that we come along to a passage like this and we're just unable to take it as it sits. Just unable to appreciate the beauty that is here, the clarity in the words of Jesus Christ. Unable even to come along with an open, clean slate in our minds and just read it and let it sink in. We've got to bring baggage to the passage. I want to really encourage you today, leave your baggage out of this passage. Let's read it together. Let's study it together. Let it speak to you afresh. Let it speak to you right now where you are in your life. Let God reveal Himself through the words of His only Son right now as you sit and listen to this message. The Bible is so clear here as we read the words of Jesus. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God sent His Son into the world to save. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not, verse 18, believe in Him is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That is to say, this is how it works. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. Pretty strong terms, huh? Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. 
But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they may have been done in God. Every time I've ever talked to an individual who has told me, I love God. A lot of people say that, and it's easy to say that. It's cheap to say it. I'll say it again. I love God. Anybody can say that. It's so easy. And every time I've ever talked to someone who says, I love God, and me and the old man upstairs, we've got a a private understanding and this kind of dialogue. I have always brought them to this text when I doubt that they really do even know God and then challenge them on whether or not they have turned away from their old lifestyle to come and embrace a lifestyle that is inspired by God. Because he who does the truth comes to the light. If you really love the truth, you'll come to the light. And the light has been revealed in one human being, that's Jesus Christ. Anyone who tells you, I love God, but they do not love Jesus Christ, they don't love God. They're telling you they don't love God. They're also telling you they live in deeds that are evil, even if you don't know what they are, and no one else knows what they are. Thus, you can safely assume if they have not the Son, they have not life. So we're going to talk about just two things in this passage. First of all, those who believe, and secondly, those who do not believe. Let's look at those who believe. In verse 18, Jesus said, He who believes in Him is not condemned. So here is the belief that saves. Now, I think many of you know by now that there are degrees to faith. There are degrees to faith. Not all faith is the same. Probably many of you have heard explanations of the faith that says, I'll sit in this chair, I believe the chair will support me. It's kind of a subconscious thing, so you sit in it. That's a type of faith. You get in your car, you believe your car is not going to burst into flames as you drive it down the road. You're trusting in those trustworthy mechanics that you take your car to, that they've protected you against that. That's a kind of faith. There are degrees of faith. But as we get more specific about faith and belief in Jesus Christ, we understand that there are degrees even there. Let me say this, one degree really moving in close on Christ, one degree that you could be in is that you can believe about Jesus Christ. Believe about Jesus Christ. And certainly there's a sense in which to ever get to the point where you know Him personally and you're saved, you have to at least in the beginning believe about Jesus Christ as the truth comes to you. You can believe about Jesus Christ even to the point of a thoroughly orthodox confession and not know Him. There's so many misunderstandings, even to the point of people believing the right things about Jesus Christ and thinking that that is enough and assuming they're on their way to heaven and stopping there. This is a real dangerous thing. And Jesus is ministering to this very problem right here. One of the contributors to that reality is that many people grow up in homes where the truth is taught. Some of you grew up in a home where the truth was taught. What happens in that environment is that you just believe it. We just get so much of this stuff that's tradition. We don't question it. We embrace it. We just kind of bring it with us as we grow up. And sometimes that is the case with the truth about Jesus Christ. You can be taught from your earliest days that He's the Son of God, that He's the Redeemer, so you believe it. And you even think people are weird that don't believe it. But that doesn't mean you necessarily know Him. And that that is why you embrace those things. You could say, I believe Jesus Christ is God's only Son, our Lord. 
I believe he was begotten of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. I believe he suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, rose again, and so on. You could say all of that and believe it just because it's a tradition you've embraced. You might even feel warm about it. Most people do feel warm about their traditions. That's why they keep them. And when they no longer feel good about them, they abandon them. So you could even feel warm about it. You could even sense that a person, hey, everybody knows you've got to go to church to have a well-balanced life, a decent life, a good life, to be a good person, and of course, to go to heaven. You could even feel that way and not be on your way to heaven. I say again, though many of you know this, some of you don't. If you don't, you might as well learn it today in this passage, or you could be in it for a very big surprise when you stand before God alone in that hour. See, outright rejection is very easy to deal with, isn't it? When you come to an individual, what do you think about Jesus? Hate him? Oh, okay. Well, do you know about him? Of course I do. I live in America. Haven't you read the USA Today polls? I mean, hey, we all believe in him. 92% of us. Oh, okay, fine. Well, that obviously proves you're not a believer. That's right. So take your place among the condemned already. That's easy to deal with, right? But what is not so easy to deal with is, on the other hand, an orthodox belief that accepts the facts of the Bible about Jesus Christ and to realize that that belief alone won't save you. There has to be something more than that. I think it would be helpful if you realize that real salvation comes to an individual when you have the experience with Jesus Christ that Peter had in Matthew in chapter 16. Could you turn there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 16 to verse 16? They were at Caesarea Philippi, and they were there together with Jesus, and Jesus was asking around about who people were saying that he is, and all this confusion about who he was. And in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that just pushes past all the speculation, all the idolatry in the world at the time, and presses in right toward the mark. It is exact. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was there affirming that Peter was having an interaction with God, that in his interaction with God, this truth had become crystal clear to him. You see, real salvation comes to you when you have the same thing. A genuine interaction with God. Not this so-called imagined old man upstairs business or this so-called imagined my faith is an intensely personal thing. I keep it quiet. Don't bug me about it. Don't ask me about it. And don't look in my life to see about it because, you know, there's nothing there. It's not this kind of a thing at all. You come to the place where you literally begin to interact with the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, says a man who knows Him. If you believe about Jesus only, that kind of belief is not going to save you. You see, a man or a woman can have much knowledge and much light. You can know much about God. And even if you come to church, you're going to know a lot about His will, what He demands of an individual. But you see, you can know all that and still not be a Christian. Let it be said, there can be no salvation without knowledge because salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel, right? 
Paul said, I preach it because it's the power of God to salvation. There can be no salvation without knowledge. You must know who the Savior is. But there can be much knowledge where there is no salvation. And that's the thing that I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. I have often seen that illumination goes before in an individual's life when conversion does not follow after. I've seen people for sustained periods of time, an incredible time of illumination where they're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. They're interacting with God's people. The lights are going on about darkness, light, good, evil, right, wrong, idolatry, the one and only true God. And it's a tremendous experience for a human being to go through that. I've seen people experience where illumination goes before when conversion doesn't follow after. I mean, there are many people that are illumined, enlightened, and it's thrilling. Even clean up their life a little bit. I've often seen illumination goes before when conversion never follows after, and the people come through that, initial excitement wears off. And then you come to observe the truth that Paul said in Romans chapter 1 when he said, although they knew Him as God. They understood who He was. They failed to glorify Him as God. And all they did was turn away from Him and slip down deeper and deeper into the darkness and farther and farther away from the salvation that He so freely gives. So much they knew about Him, but never really knew Him personally and refused to embrace Him as their personal God. You see, to make a man or a woman a Christian, there must be the knowledge in the head. But there has to also be the heat in the heart, the life in the heart. There must be both. Understanding in the head and zeal and affections in the heart, life in the heart. There has to be both. I read about a pastor who was traveling with a friend through a southern part of England. And he came to a country town and he said, I noticed that on a brass door plate there were the names of two attorneys that aroused my interest as we were driving by. I exclaimed to the driver, now slow down here. Look at that plaque over there. Isn't that a strange name for a firm of lawyers? The sign said, Head and Heart. The names of the lawyers. Yes, said my companion. No, it's so very sad. The fact that poor old Heart died and has left Head all alone. Alas, I said, how often that is true in Christian work. Heart has died. Head is all alone. And he said to the driver, May it never be so with you and I. May we put our heads and our hearts into our salvation and the Lord's work. That's it. All too often, heart has died. Head is all alone. Head is being filled up. But there's no life. There's no zeal. There's no affection in the heart for God. And that is not enough. Some people, we could put it this way, some people have zeal and they have no knowledge. All the zeal, effusive with their zeal and no knowledge. That is what we could call blind devotion. Some people have knowledge and no zeal. That is what we could call fruitless speculation. But where there is knowledge in the head about Christ and there is a zeal and a passion and a life in the heart, that is what we call salvation. Light in the head and heat in the heart. Do you have it today? Do you have this light in the head and the heat in the heart? Do you enjoy logic on fire? 
when the Bible is exposited and it hits your heart and it's got the life of God with it and it lights you on fire? Do you enjoy reasoning through the Scriptures? Not just for the sake of reasoning, because you're some philosopher, but because you love God and you love to reason through the truth that when understood makes you free? Do you have light in the head and heat in the heart today? This is what real salvation is all about. You see, you can believe about Jesus Christ and not be saved. There are degrees of faith, and that is one degree. But the next main degree up is that you must believe in, in Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ in a saving way is then to take Him on His terms. Turn in your Bible, could you, to Romans 10 to verse 9. This is a wonderful passage. It's often quoted when people are witnessing. It's often passed over very lightly. It is an intensely deep passage. Romans 10.9. Paul is writing here about the way of salvation and the nature of belief that saves. And he says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... Notice he, by design, does not just say Jesus, but he says the Lord Jesus, and you believe now down in your heart, life in the heart, affection in the heart for God, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Again, do you remember what the heart is? We've discussed it lately. It is the center of your being. When you bring the center of your being and attach it to God in a trusting faith, you come unto righteousness, the gift of eternal life. And with the mouth, verse 10, confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Notice this phrase in verse 11, whoever believes on Him... This is found often in the Bible. You read these words, believe on. What this is, is an effort in the English to communicate the confidence and the trust that is involved in true saving belief. So as it comes across from the Greek, which is a very descriptive language, much more so than the English, this is an attempt to communicate this confidence, this dependency, this trust that is implied in the Greek about how you come to embrace Jesus Christ. The NIV brings this across a little better, I think, in Romans 10.11. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. It's the idea that you come and believe upon Jesus that He is the Lord, speaking of His deity, speaking of His control that He takes over an individual's life who comes to Him. You believe from the very center of your being, out of the center of your being. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So from deep down in the heart, not from the head, but from deep in the heart, there comes a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the NIV says. You confess Jesus as Lord. It's not just a general confession. It is a confession that says, you are now my Lord. Now that I understand in my head, I'm giving my heart. You are now my Lord. This is what you find in the life of Thomas. Thomas, you know, got a bad rap, didn't he? Thomas is, what do we know him as? Doubting Thomas. Let's go to John 20 to verse 27. Whatever Thomas's struggles may have been to this point, he certainly hits the target now. 
And this is the kind of belief and confession that God is looking for that saves a man or a woman. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples out of nowhere. And Thomas is there. And he said to Thomas, Reach out your finger and behold my hands. And so Jesus stretches out his hands with the nail prints in them. And he says, Reach out your hand now and thrust it into my side, no doubt exposing the hole there from the spear. And he says, Be not faithless, but believing. Go ahead, if you have to, touch me. There is no record of Thomas saying, Yeah, just put your left hand over here, let me try it. There is no record of Thomas saying, I wonder if I could get two fingers in the hole in your side. Instead, what you find is Thomas, I believe, fell flat on his face and said, My Lord and my God. You understand the fullness of that confession? He doesn't say, Lord Jesus, Oh God. He says, My Lord, my God. He's now illuminated in the mind. He's got the light and his heart is now on fire with passion and devotion as he embraces Jesus as his own personal Lord and God. He is surrendering his life over to Jesus Christ. This is the confession that saves a man. And Jesus affirms that. He says in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those, Thomas, that will believe and confess too that I am their Lord and I am their God. God indicates deity. Lord indicates control. Does that bless you tonight or does it bother you? See, if it blesses you that it is a good affirmation that you are God's child, that you have this belief that saves, if it bothers you, if it offends you, if it outright bugs you, then that is a very good indication that you're not God's child. And it doesn't matter at this point then what you know. If you cannot say, my Lord and my God, then you are not God's child. You are not one of those that is not condemned because they believe. You see, to believe on Him is to come into a union with Him. The little word in, back in John 3.18, could you go back there? It's a very interesting word. John 3.18, we're looking at and talking about the phrase, He who believes in Him is not condemned. This little word in, He who believes in Him is not condemned. It is from the Greek word eis, E-I-S. Ice. This little word is translated repeatedly in the New Testament as into, by the word into. I find that an interesting thing because that is exactly what happens when you come to have a true connecting belief in Jesus Christ. When you have the same experience that Peter had at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus said, God has revealed this to you. You're having an exchange with God, Peter. I find it interesting that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you literally go into Him. That's what the Bible teaches. You're placed into Christ. For example, 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized, literally immersed, into one body. That's the body of Christ. We have all been made to drink into the Spirit, which is, of course, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. When you properly believe in Jesus, you are placed into Christ. You have your life in Him. You're connected with Him. 
In Romans 6.3, Paul said, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death, and of course raised in His resurrected life with Him, you are connected with Him. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. To believe in Him is to be placed into Him, to be immersed into Him. And that is why Paul says in Colossians 3.4, When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Christ who is our life, is He your life? I've been shocked lately to be among people that call themselves brethren and just out and out lie to everyone around them and have no regard whatsoever for that reality. Shocked to see people among us who just come and attend regularly but get close to them and spend time with them and only you will find they have no regard for the things of God whatsoever. And yet sit and smile in church. Pay attention even. At least look like they are. And then you get around them, spend time with them. There's no life of God there at all. This is what really has me so burdened as I give this message. I'm concerned there's more than one, more than two. We must all search our souls to see where we are with these truths. The question I put before you today is this. Have you believed in Him in this way? Do you look to Christ as your life? Can you say of Him, He is my all in all. He's my life. My heart goes out to Him. My affections go out to Him. Can you say with Thomas, My Lord, my God. Can you say that to Him today? Will you say that to Him today? You must say that to Him today. If you're to stand with those who are not condemned, because they believe in Him. You see, there are many degrees of believing, but the belief that saves is the one that places you into Christ. Let's talk for a minute about something else here. If you look at John 3.18 again, Jesus says, He who believes in Him is not condemned. That to me is one of the most wonderful phrases, not condemned, no condemnation. If ever there was a truth to meditate on, this is it. Do you practice meditating on the Bible, on the truths of the Bible? It's one of the greatest cleansing things in all of life. You know, there are so many things around us in the world today to pollute our minds, to afflict our minds. And yet, we have discovered in the Bible that the men of God that were victorious, that knew God well and intimately, the women of that same caliber were those like the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and I will contemplate your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. That's the heart of the psalmist. To meditate on these things. If you want to meditate on something that will bless your soul as a Christian, meditate on this. There's no condemnation for he or she who believes in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. Take that blessed truth from this place today and roll it over in your soul. Roll it over again and again and again. And just let the sweetness of it sink into your life. Why? Because God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You know, you look at Jesus and His ministry through the Gospels, you know what you'll discover very quickly? You will discover very quickly that we never see Jesus condemning a believing sinner. Never. 
And it's a tremendous thing because there are some pretty bad ones that came his way. For example, in the case of the woman at the well, we'll study it in John 4. The woman at the well, take that for an example. She comes to Jesus, she's talking to him there. He sees her heart, he knows all things. She's had one husband after the next, and now she lives with a man and is not married. Does that tell you what kind of woman this is? Of course it does. And yet you watch him interact with her. It is amazing. I mean, if we want to get instruction about how to lead people to Christ, you watch him interact with real, honest-to-goodness, sinful people and understand who he is and come to believe in him and how they run to tell others about him. It's no wonder because of the way he reveals himself to them. He interacts with the woman at the well when he is all done talking to her, revealing himself to her, the way of salvation to her. She drops the bucket that she brought to the well. I love that little detail in there. She drops her bucket and runs away from the well. Hey, lady, I thought you had a job to do. Forget the job. I have a new one. Then she goes out and brings the city out to hear this man who told her everything about her life and is, in her mind, now and heart, the Messiah. But you see the gentleness, the tenderness, the directness. You see them bring the woman taken in adultery. And oh, they're so proud and arrogant and vicious. They've got their big giant stones and they're ready to just kill the woman on the spot. Jesus takes an amazing posture. And he begins to stoop down and write in the dirt. What he wrote, we do not know. We do know for sure what the effect was. The effect was when he was done writing, all the people, the men that came out wanting to kill this woman were now gone. Something that he wrote in the dirt had something to do with their lives and had something about revealing their own deeds, I'm certain of it. And that's why they were all gone. I'm certain Jesus wasn't sitting there doing tic-tac-toe. No way. You know, they wrote in clay and all that in those days, so they're good at this. He probably just swept it clean and just started with the man in the front. Not in a hurry. They weren't in a hurry in those days. And just wrote. And one by one, they all turned around and snuck out of the crowd. And when he's all done, he says, Where are your accusers, woman? I don't see any of them left. And then this wonderful thing, Neither do I condemn you. And then this, now you go and sin no more. All of that is to say, we don't have every detail, every word, but that is to say she believed on him. She had an exchange with him that sent her away in a new direction with no condemnation, which means her belief was right. He validated it and said, now, don't you sin anymore. Go off in the new life that I give to you. But you understand that he never condemned anyone who came and believed in him. Never condemned the sinner that would come and believe in Him. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Why? Back to John 3.17, because God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That isn't why He came. He came to save the world. He was known as a friend of publican and sinners. Why? Because He went in among them to pull them out of the darkness into the light. Didn't come to condemn them. You see, the amazing thing to me about that is this. God had every right to send His Son to condemn the world. It would seem to me that at this point in the history of the human race, God would have said to His Son, I know it's a dirty job, but I want you to go down there and I want you to clean house. And when you come back, I want you to make sure not one of them is left alive. Then you report back to me. Now I could understand that completely. Because the human race was living in complete rebellion. But no, He came not to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him would be saved. We never see him condemning a believing sinner. He who believes on him is not condemned. Roll it over in your soul. Come and taste of the sweetness because you and I are sinners. And those of us that know Christ, we are sinners still. And we have our hours of condemnation. We need to come again to this text to he or she that believes in him. There is no condemnation. And John loves to deal with the currency of life, the present. And this is a no condemnation status that starts now and it goes on forever. You know what I love about this? We could go on with examples. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, Matthew. I mean, all these people that came to him. But what I love about this is that you go on to see him become the companion of so many of these. Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. She becomes his friend. Matthew, worst rip-off artist in town, in Capernaum. Everybody knew him and everybody hated him. Wasn't such a big place that you couldn't know him. He ripped everybody off. You had to come to him with your taxes. Everyone hated him. Next thing you know, he goes to dinner at Matthew's house. People call it Matthew's party. He went there. The next thing you know, Matthew is a saved individual, leaves his life of sin, and becomes one of Jesus' close friends. It's amazing to me. You open up the New Testament. What do you find? The book of what? Matthew. Wretched man. Friend of Jesus. Saved man because he believed in Jesus. What I'm saying is this, is that we never see him condemning a believing sinner. What we see is he forgives them, he saves them, and he makes them his friend. We need a great companion in life, don't we? We need the great companion. I'm so thankful that with the problems, the perplexities, the difficulties, the loneliness of life, that I have the great companion. I was reading recently about some of the stuff you find in the legends of India. From a long time ago, I read this one. Two kings were about to go to war, and they appeared before the god Krishna prior to the battle. He said, To one of you I will give you ten armies of soldiers, to the other I will give myself unarmed. One king was very happy. He chose the ten armies of soldiers, and he went off congratulating himself for how smart he was. The other king seemed just as happy to have the god alongside him. Krishna asked him, Why do you choose me? Why did you choose me? And the king replied, Because I need a great companion. You see, we already know that Krishna is a fantasy god. We know that if even such a discussion took place, it wouldn't really help. But what I want to say is this. With God on our side, we have a great companion. With the right belief in Christ, He becomes our great companion. He endears himself to you. And when all around you turn against you, misunderstand you, and even some of your best moments, he is there as your great companion. You need him. That comes with the no condemnation status. That's the thing I love about what we've been studying in the armor, the shoes of peace. You come to be at peace with God. He's on your side. If God be for you, who could be against you? All of that is in the context of the war. I love to come back again to it in this context and see it as Jesus, the friend of sinners, just moving through life with you. It is the greatest thing in all the world. I know most of you have woken up in life wretchedly lonely at points in time, feeling the gnaw of the emptiness inside the loneliness. Jesus has come to take that away forever. And when you come to believe right upon Him and move into Him and have that life in Him, 
He becomes your great companion. There is no condemnation, not now, not ever. And it is the greatest thing in the world. So we have been talking about those who believe. Let's talk about those who do not believe. Let's move a little farther here in John 3.18. What we're finding here is this. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here it is. He who does not believe is condemned already. You know what this is saying? It is saying this. You are condemned by your own unbelief before God. I see this as a very important passage. Because here is the bottom line reason that people don't go to heaven. The bottom line reason. It is crucial that you don't miss the simplicity here. I sort of mentioned that in the beginning. So you find that throughout John's Gospel, he is amazingly simple. I told you when we first got into John that his vocabulary is simple. Just in the Greek, it's the vocabulary of about a seven-year-old child. It is amazingly simple. And you understand when he wrote it that people might come to believe in Christ and that all might come. You can understand that simplicity. But it is never at any point simplistic. And here you find this simplicity that is not simplistic. It's deep. It's rich. It is infinitely profound. And in giving us this simplicity with all this depth that a man is condemned because he doesn't believe, he is giving us a warning that we don't become so refined and complex and pasteurized in our theology that we cannot appreciate the simple bottom line truth as it sits in the Bible and come to it with no baggage and respond to it in simple, honest, God-fearing faith. You see, John shows here from the human side this, that in the end, the only matter in salvation is faith. That's the bottom line thing from the human side. Nothing more is required. Now, we've talked about the nature of that faith. It's interesting, you watch John in his teaching, every now and then he will emphasize a point by one of the simplest of all devices. You know what that is? He simply repeats it. And here he draws on the words of Jesus, believe, believe, believe. He repeats it by design, pulling from the words of Jesus to show us that it is believing that matters in salvation, not some other thing. We want to run all over the Bible and find all these other things and we get so erudite and so mental. We can't even appreciate what we find here that it's believing that matters. Don't forget who's saying this. I appreciate all the grand masters, the great theologians, the redwood giants throughout church history. I appreciate their insights, their conclusions, but never to the exclusion of the words in red in my Bible. And I read and read the words of Jesus, and he says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Here it is. Because. You want the bottom line reason from the lips of Jesus? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What I'm really saying to you is this. A man or a woman is not condemned to hell because they are predestined to hell, or because they are a, quote, non-elect Take it from the lips of Jesus. We're at the bedrock here. You can't go down any farther. There's no more topsoil. This is the bedrock, the foundation of it all. He says a man is condemned because he doesn't believe. That's why he's condemned. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So here's the bottom line reason of why people don't go to heaven. 
Again, I appreciate all the arguments. I appreciate the systematic theology. I appreciate the need to clean yourself up, understand what you believe, get it crystallized, stand on it, move on in life. But don't ever move beyond the word and read of Jesus Christ and the simplicity with the depth that is there at the same time. And if that rattles you, I hope it does. Because I have, at certain points in my life, moved through this text and brought my baggage and said, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, and seemed so clever and was so proud as I moved through that I missed the richness that in the end, he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And there's nothing more wonderful than that. Here is a fixed state of unbelief. That's what condemns you. John 3.18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, if you're getting nervous and you're saying, well, I want to know if I fit in this category, understand that this is a fixed state of unbelief. This is not some passing doubt. It's a fixed state of unbelief. When you read in verse 18 that the one who does not believe is condemned already, and then you read that he who has not believed, those verbs coming from the Greek over to the English are in the perfect tense, speaks of a lasting state, John is talking about a continuing state of unbelief. Someone who has entered into that. Someone who no longer keeps open the possibility that Jesus might be the Son of God and they might give their life to Him. He's talking about the person who gets settled in in an atmosphere of unbelief and they stay there because they want to. They know Christianity is the way for some people. They know some choose it, but for that individual it's irrelevant. It's a sustained unbelief. But it is a sustained unbelief that condemns you. And I want you to realize this, in case you're wondering, well, why? I mean, how? Why would someone want to stay in a, a state of sustained unbelief before God? Why would they want to? How could they? Someone else is voicing the answer right now in their mind. Well, I know. Non-elect. I know. I've got it figured out. Oh, no. It isn't that they cannot believe. Jesus doesn't say that. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came to save men in the world. It isn't that they cannot believe. It isn't that there isn't enough pre-salvation illumination that comes from the Holy Spirit to quicken you and convict you and rake your heart deeply and plow it. No, it isn't that there isn't enough of that because the Holy Spirit is very faithful to bring that. To exercise a man until he trembles. You find the book of Acts, Paul is preaching to a man and he starts shaking. Why? Because God was exercising his heart. Oh, there's plenty there to bring a man to be able to believe. In a pre-salvation illumination, exercise of a man's heart. But you see, it isn't because men can't believe. It is because men will not believe. You are condemned by your own love of the darkness. That's what condemns you. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He does everything that's necessary to enable a man to do that. Jesus said it to the people in His day. He said in John 5.39, I want you to turn there with me. We'll look at it together. It wasn't that they couldn't believe. It wasn't that they were unable. It wasn't that they didn't have enough quickening from God in their death-like stake. Oh, no. He says, You search the Scriptures. You guys, you know the Word. You're professionals at it. You live in it. You search the Scriptures. 
Why? Because in them you think you have eternal life, and these were smug, self-righteous religious people. And then he says this, They are they which testify of me. It isn't that there isn't enough information about me. It isn't that there isn't enough illumination about who I am. It isn't that I wasn't forecasted throughout human history from beginning till now. Oh no, that isn't it. It isn't that you can't come. You have enough information. You could come to me if you wanted to. And then he says this staggering thing, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me. That's the reason that you might have life. Oh, you could come if you want to, but you don't want to. You're not willing. Why? Why would they not be willing then? Now you've got your clever answers again. But the Bible is simple. It says they won't come because they choose darkness rather than light. They love the darkness. Why won't men come? Why won't men believe? Simply this. They love darkness. They like it. Then they don't want to leave it. You say, well, why wouldn't someone want to come out of the darkness into the light? I mean, it's the greatest thing in the whole world. To know God. To be blessed with God's power and to change. And Why wouldn't a man want that? Well, we're told right here. They love darkness rather than light. They refuse to believe. Here is the bottom line because their deeds are evil and they don't want to let them go. John 3.19 And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. Jesus and His Gospel. And men loved instead darkness rather than light. Here's why they love darkness rather than light. Here's why they don't believe because their deeds are evil. It is no more complicated than that. Verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's why you read in Romans 1.29. Could you turn there in your Bible? You read a wonderful description. Not wonderful, really. A horrifying description, but accurate, of this whole reality men who knew God as God, failed to glorify Him as God, won't come to the light because they hate the light, hate the light because their deeds are evil, and they don't want to let their deeds go. Verse 29, Romans 1, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, this isn't that they're full of all this, but, you know, spread it around. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whispers, they're backbiters, they're haters of God, they're violent, proud, boasters. They sit around and invent evil things. They're disobedient to parents. They're undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. It's almost as if Paul is putting one more word in, one more word in to catch all those who haven't found themselves there yet and want to say, I'm not in that list. Don't put me in that category. And then this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Men don't come to God. Women don't come to God. Not because they can't come to God, but because they don't want to come to God. And the reason is because they love darkness, and they love the darkness, and they hate the light because their deeds are evil, and they don't want to let go of their evil deeds. So they find people that are like-minded, and those are the ones they attach themselves to. How many here have ever read the writings of H.G. Wells? Incredibly brilliant man. In his book, First and Last Things, he said that he was repelled by Jesus Christ whom he called this image of virtue, this terrible and incomprehensible Galilean. He despised Jesus Christ. Wells said that he was far more attracted to Oliver Goldsmith, 
who was a charming, witty, literary genius whose conduct was often immoral, deceptive, and dishonest. Always in debt, Goldsmith once tried to raise money by pretending he was a doctor. When he died at age 44 from the misuse of medicine, his last words were pathetic in his admission that he had absolutely no inner peace, and yet Wells favored Goldsmith over Jesus. Why? Because Goldsmith's deeds were evil, because Wells hated the light, because his deeds also were evil. Is it apparent to you by now that it is the man, it is the woman, his self, herself, that condemns themselves before God? It is not God that condemns you. He didn't come into the world to condemn man, but to save man. It is not God who condemns you. You condemn yourself by your own unbelief, which is fired by your love for darkness and evil deeds. And then this staggering statement, John 3.18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. You see, I think most sinners that refuse to repent think of it like someday I'll stand before God, someday God will judge me. What God is saying right here is it doesn't need to be someday and your judgment isn't going to wait until someday. You are already judged. You are already condemned right now because you don't believe. And this status robs you of any relationship with God now. It is something that will continue into eternity and rob you of God's presence irrevocably forever. John is showing us it is not God that condemns you, it's the human being that condemns their own self. This is how God's judgment works. You impose judgment on yourself. You literally sell your soul for the love of darkness. And the lifestyle that you hold back from God in that darkness, men will not come to the light because they hate the light, because their deeds are evil, because if they came out into the light with God, their deeds would be shown to be evil right in the face of God. They would be told to abandon them, to repent of them, to leave them. They are refusing to do that, so they do not come to God. You sell your soul for the love of darkness because of the lifestyle you hold back from God in the darkness. And that's why it says, but he who does the truth in verse 21 comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they're done in God. Nothing to hide. Lord, I confess I'm guilty. But I also confess I believe in the only Savior who can free me from this guilt and I come gladly. Take my sin. Someone has written this. Still as in days of old, man by himself is priced for 30 pieces of silver Judas sold himself, not Christ. That is exactly right. You may have thought all these years that Judas sold Jesus. Oh no. Jesus didn't go to the cross because Judas sent him there. Jesus went to the cross because God sent him there. For this purpose he came into the world to die. He was on his way to the cross from the moment he was born on this planet. He would have gone there one way or the other. Judas didn't sell Jesus. He sold himself. He sold his soul for his own love of darkness, for his own lifestyle, his own ambition, his own agenda. And he lost eternity with God for 30 pieces of silver. You might say, well, I don't have any fixed price. I don't have any fixed ambition. Well, maybe you're just drifting through the darkness. 
but still refusing to come to the light, then you will perish by default by doing nothing. Barnes wrote in his commentary, he says, Neglect is enough to ruin a person. A man in business need not commit forgery or robbery to suffer financial disaster. He has only to ignore his work and failure then is certain. A man who is lying on a bed of sickness need not cut his throat to destroy himself. He has only to disregard the means of restoration and he will die. A man floating in a skiff above Niagara Falls need not move one oar at the proper time, and he will certainly be carried over the cataract to his death. Most calamities of life, he says, are caused by simple neglect. That's right. And the greatest calamity of all is to neglect your own salvation, to reject the light because you love the darkness, because you're hiding a lifestyle there that you don't want to let go and you know if you bring it to God, He'll tell you to drop it. What a disaster that is. Someone has said, if you want to count in God's census later, you better come to your senses now. Have you come to your senses? Is there no condemnation for you today because you believe? Or are you condemned already because you have not believed? And have you not believed because you really, in the end, hate the light because your deeds are evil and you don't want to bring them to the light and therefore you have already condemned yourself. God hasn't condemned you. You've put yourself in the judgment process by your refusal to come to Him and believe. Only you can answer that question. Jesus came to save sinners and when they will come to Him, He saves them, He forgives them, He renews them and He makes them his personal, eternal friend. Come to Him. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this clear word in this passage on salvation. And thank You, Lord, that it is so simple. And thank You, Lord, for manifesting the simplicity of it and at the same time showing us that there's nothing deeper and more profound in all of life than this. Move, Holy Spirit, upon each and every heart that is here. Break forth into the darkness with your light and the power of your love. Show the folly of forsaking your way and draw those that must come to be saved to you today. If you don't know Christ, open your heart to him now as we're praying. Ask him to forgive your sins where you sit and let him cleanse them away and cling to Him with a passionate heart and let Him give you life and wipe away all condemnation from you forever. Do it now where you sit. Be honest with God. Jesus, forgive us for our sins. Wash us clean, Lord. Bless us with the enjoyment of being your friend, having you with us in our darkest, hardest moments and enjoying your fellowship and friendship forever. Move in us now. Reveal yourself to each one of us in a fresh new way. And may we move from this message in your direction, denying ourselves, picking up our crosses, gladly and joyfully following after you. And Lord, we will give you the glory you so wonderfully deserve as we enjoy this great power at work within us and this great love that can only come from you.
and we will bless your holy name for it. For we do ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.